let's get down to business to record this one. <laughs> Watching Disney movies with the mom and son. <laughs> you might think Mulan's over discussed. And there's nothing left to say. Mr. I'll podcast anyway. <laughs> Very good. I did wonder if you were going to um, put in earlier the puns, though. Something about puns. Oh, that would have been good. But I didn't. In that first line, at the end of the first line, I was like, oh, I should have said puns. I did. I went through a lot of versions and I had a much longer one that I yeah. decided not to subject people to because I've been doing a lot of long ones. <laughs> I just wanted to show off how I could uh, do all the voices Ah, in the I'm never going to catch my breath part. But uh, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. It's fine. We could just do a podcast. Indeed. A podcast about Mulan. and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. And we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do with good fortune and a great hairdo. You're truly... <laughs> Bringing honor to us all. <laughs> this week on the program, we are finishing the Disney Renaissance, controversially, with <laughs> 1998's Mulan, directed by Barry Cook and Tony Bancroft. The controversial part is that some people think Tarzan is a Renaissance movie, but they're wrong. And I'll talk about it. They're not wrong. It's not how I drew the dividing lines. But we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, it's all made up. Anyway, Mom, this movie, Mulan, what does it mean to you? I have always loved this movie. I can't remember if we saw it in theaters, but I know we had the VHS when you were a little a little thing. And uh, you loved the movie when you were very young as well. You called it Mushu because, you know, he was the <laughs> most important character to you. That's right. <laughs> and you had a little Mushu plushie that when you smacked it, it talked. Mm -hmm. You were a big fan. That's right. I guess most of my memories of this movie from early on are with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Number one Mushu fan, 1998. I was looking yeah. at the cover for Dat Clamshell. Uh, it's a really good cover. Like, I think it's better than the poster for the movie because the VHS <laughs> cover is her holding up the sword yeah. over her face. And the half of the face reflected in the sword, much like the song Reflection, is... You know, her it's ping, right? Uh -huh. It's her in, in that mode. Yeah, I think it's really clever. And the poster for this is just kind of what they started doing for all the Renaissance posters, where it's like striking image, monochromatic. <laughs> this is a prestige picture, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, you talked about what this movie means to me. But yes, I loved it. Loved it for a long time. I haven't watched it. Uh, for quite some time. I, I was debating whether or not I've seen this movie since VHS. Maybe once, but probably not more than that. Huh? Um, and it was really nice to come back to it. Like, I really think I appreciated it even more this time. 
I don't know if that's because I hadn't seen it for a while. I don't know if that's because, you know, we just watched Hercules. <laughs> like after trying to find the good in Hunchback and Hercules and just accepting there is no good in Pocahontas, it's nice to just watch a capital G good movie that like, you know, we don't need to mount a defense of this one. We're just like, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's great. And yet you might not have thought that it would be a good movie. The origins of this movie are interesting in how uninteresting they are. <laughs> so it's not a very like dramatic production. Yeah. They needed to do another movie. Mm-hmm. They set up a new animation studio in Florida, which for those of you who don't live in the United States is roughly analogous to hell. <laughs> and uh, around that. And they wanted to, you know, they started making a movie because we got to be constantly making movies. And they were talking about doing an Asian legend and they eventually settled on uh, Mulan. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it was interesting to read some of the history of Hua Mulan. There's debates about what her family name was slash is. There's differing reports. Yeah. Um, Hua Mulan is how she's usually referred to now. Obviously, Fa Mulan is another alternative that they use in this movie. Yeah. But uh, we don't know if Mulan is real or not, which was interesting <laughs> to me. I'd always assumed she was this fictitious character and she might be, but she also might not have been because she's uh, from a, a time in Chinese history where I guess we don't have a lot of detailed history, so we can't say for sure. And there are several accounts of her life slash of this story, (laughs) which is why, like, again, they give different last names and stuff. The oldest and kind of like what is seen as the canonical text is the Ballad of Mulan, which I read an English translation of, um, which is something that most Chinese people uh, would read in school and learn about. Like, this is a very important ye olde text, right? Like, <laughs> kind of kind of like, you know, how I read Beowulf multiple times. Yeah. But it's only 390 words long, so it's not even as long as that. Um, and its very famous last lines are translated, of course. But when the two rabbits run side by side, how can you tell the female from the male? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's it's obviously a story that uh, resonates across time. There's a lot of different themes you can read into it. It's very malleable, especially since it is such a short poem. Yeah. There are so many adaptations of this in general, but especially Chinese adaptations of this. Like, it's much so true. It's much like when we were talking about all the different versions of Beauty and the Beast that have been made in the West. Like, there are so many versions of Mulan in like movies and TV shows and plays and yeah. Yeah. Cause I went looking like what's a good, you know, Chinese version to watch. Like, is there an accepted best version? There is not, there is, <laughs> there's raging to it's, it's maybe a, the a Christmas Carol is a better example. Maybe everybody's got their favorite. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But obviously it's, a, it's an incredibly well-known story it's a big deal and uh again why it's very malleable why not make a disney movie about it yep so the two directors they got are not particularly notable directors which is surprising because this movie is i think very well directed yeah barry cook is one of the directors he had previously directed the roger rabbit cartoon trail (laughs) mix-up uh i think 
A lot of people may not know, even if you've seen Roger Rabbit, that they produced three shorts that played in theaters. Yeah. And those shorts were done in large part to develop talent, uh, develop animation talent, because, you know, Walt Disney feature animation kind of had to be rebuilt in the early 90s, as we've discussed. And so he was a director of one of those. And uh, he was it was always kind of presumed he would go work on a movie. Uh, and he was offered two projects, a Scottish folk tale uh, that never happened or <laughs> Mulan. And of course, he ended up choosing Mulan. Uh, Barry Cook, I found out, pretty interesting guy. Yeah. Has gone on to do more interesting things. He was a special effects animator before this. Uh, he worked a lot on, you know, Black Cauldron with its goofy compositions. <laughs> uh, he worked a lot on Oliver and Company and Rescuers Down Under Oliver and Company, of course, had the CGI. Rescuers Down Under was the first big Caps movie. Uh, he worked on Beauty and the Beast. So he was an effects guy, mm-hmm. which I think shows in this movie to some extent because it is very effects heavy. But I was surprised to see that he also uh, co-directed under Sarah Smith, Arthur Christmas, which is maybe just interesting to me because it's a movie that I just watched this year, like a few weeks ago for Christmas, because I was like, oh, there's one Ardman movie I've never seen. You know, Christmas movies, when you watch them in December, they always get an extra star on the rating, even if they're garbage. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's he's mostly gone on to do a lot of uh, effects stuff. And uh, he's also worked with the Jesus Film Project, uh, which is a company that does like weird Weird Christian film, so I, I don't know. He's doing he's he's doing stuff. He's got takes. And one of his big takes was that he wanted this to feel like a classical movie and especially like a big epic. Uh, he cited David Lean as an influence who, among many other huge epics, uh, is probably best known for, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, which I think comes through in this movie like it. It does feel like the Disney version of a historical epic, you know. Yeah. There's big battles and takes place over a long time. It really works. And then Tony Bancroft was uh, an animator on the Gargoyles for Hunchback of Notre Dame, (laughs) who upgraded to this. And you know what? Yeah, he redeemed himself. (laughs) I mean, at least he'd been a supervising animator on Lion King. He would never direct uh, another movie, but he has continued to work as an animator. Uh, he worked on Emperor's New Groove. He worked on some of the Blue Sky stuff, some DreamWorks stuff, and some Disney stuff. <laughs> uh, he was one of the animators working on the one good scene in Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> and just this past year, he was the character animator for Daffy Duck on the completely terrible Space Jam A New Legacy. It's work, I guess. Oh, yeah. Like, it's... Yeah. (laughs) You can't blame him. But, uh, yeah, I would definitely say that Tony Bancroft's career is a land of contrasts. (laughs) Indeed. And from what I read, uh, no offense to him, it it seems like uh, Barry Cook had more impact on the direction of the movie. Uh, But, of course, he did a lot as well. Uh, He joined a little later. Uh, Another person who's extremely important to this movie is Chris Sanders, who is the director of Lilo and Stitch. He's a guy we've talked about before. He's obviously a guy we will talk about again. I should say director of Lilo and Stitch and How to Train Your Dragon. He is a really important part of the Disney Renaissance, and he was the head of the story team on this movie. Uh, Obviously, there's like six credited screenwriters, Um, But he was the head and he was the one who was really pushing it 
along with Cook, to have this more epic tone and to be more of this dramatic action-y movie, whereas originally it was intended to be this romantic comedy where, you know, oh, she and Li Shang are in love, but he doesn't know she's cross-dressed. Like, whatever. I don't know what that would have been. Sounds dumb. Yeah. And he went, hey, what if we just did Mulan? You know, what's a story people like Mulan? (laughs) It's funny that they were actually going to, like, I guess you could say Disneyfy the story by basically taking the names and completely changing the story. And they went, hey, wait a minute. What if we just did the story? Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty funny that they actually backed off and I'm not complaining. No, no, they they sounds dumb what they were planning (laughs) before. Because, again, like Hercules was the same thing of like, oh, let's do an irreverent comedy rather than just doing it. And it's like, just do it like it works. Yep. One of the most important scenes in the movie was sequence six is what they called it internally. And I apologize because I know that I hit my S's really hard. So nobody wants to hear me say sequence six. (laughs) That is the scene where Milan takes her father's order, cuts her hair, dons her armor, runs away. It has that great piece of score. Yeah. You know, that I can hear my absolutely a pivotal moment in the movie. One of the best parts. And it sounds like it was a thing kind of like with Circle of Life where they created specifically they had to make a bunch of changes to it. It was originally a song, but after they changed the story from the romantic comedy angle, they dropped the song. So this storyboard artist who is also one of the writers, Dean DeBlois, I think is how you say it. He redid the sequence and he was like, what if we did this with no dialogue? And they put in a musical selection from like some other score. They didn't have the score yet. They just put in a song and Peter Schneider and Thomas Schumacher, two of the big execs with their fingers in the pie of this movie, were really impressed by it. And it encouraged them to do more scenes without dialogue in them, which is something I, without reading this, like commented on while we were watching the movie is like this movie really knows when to be quiet, which I appreciate. I hadn't ever noticed before how silent it is sometimes, how many scenes there are without dialogue, because when a movie's working, you don't really pay attention to what it's doing sometimes, or at least I don't. Mm hmm. There's a really interesting quote. I forget who said it, but when silent movies transitioned into talkies, one of the big I'm sure somebody knows who this is. It's a famous quote. I apologize. But one of the like people who's working in film at the time, a a, like well-known director, complained that like, oh, people were just learning how to film things (laughs) with the argument being. And there's some truth to this that like. Silent movies forced people to be so much more visually innovative and do so much more with visual storytelling. And once the talkies came out, you could rely more on dialogue and you didn't have to film things, you know, lazy with as much intent, (laughs) which, yeah, it's hilarious to be like, oh, these talkies are ruining cinema. (laughs) But at the same time, like there is some truth to you can get a lot of power sometimes uh, with no dialogue at all. True. And it can force you to do more interesting things with the animation. Roy E. Disney was apparently the one who wanted to add the character of Mushu, but it seems like that was kind of an executive directive in general because, hey, our previous movies haven't been doing so well, so let's do another Robin Williams. They considered Joe Pesci (laughs) different movie. 
Yeah. And Richard Dreyfus. Also a different movie. Just a bad choice, I think. <laughs> um, but then they settled on the uh, not insane choice of Eddie Murphy, <laughs> who insisted that he record the voice in his basement. Uh, I think is really good in this movie. Obviously, you know, number one Mushu fan, 1998. <laughs> but... Uh, well, we'll talk about it. I mean, I'm stepping on your toes here with the casting, I guess. But uh, you you know Eddie Murphy is in this movie. It's true. I mean, we always <laughs> mention some of the cast early because you just can't help it. It's relevant to the you know story of how this movie was made because the character of Mushu is just what if Eddie Murphy was in a Disney movie? You know, Indeed. like that's that was the take. And then they did that. They obviously, uh, in the animation, incorporated some more elements of uh, ancient Chinese art. Yes, which I like very much. They didn't do it to as much of an extent that Hercules did, which is fine. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a fact. But you do see touches of it, and it's always very cool. Mm -hmm. The score was really interesting. The music for this. Yeah, I was surprised at how many times the the people they wanted to have do the music changed. Yeah, it went through like five or six different people because... Uh, they were originally going to use Stephen Schwartz. After all, he'd done the music for, well, he'd done the songs for Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. But instead... <laughs> and I thought we were done with him. I know this is the first uh, post-Katzenberg movie, but we have to keep talking about him because of his rival studio, DreamWorks, and he got Stephen Schwartz to come over and do the songs for Prince of Egypt, which came out the same year as Mulan. Which are good songs. They're really good songs. Yeah. They're re they might be better <laughs> than, than Mulan, but I don't know. I, I really like both of these songs. It's hard to say. I really love the Mulan songs, too. So then uh, after he got poached, they really tried to keep him and failed to do so. And then they tried a whole bunch of other people. Uh, they eventually... Settled on the songwriting team of Matthew Wilder and David Zippel. Yep. Who didn't do much else. They didn't do anything as notable as this. And they were actually nominated for Oscars for this. I don't believe they won. David Zippel uh, had actually written the lyrics for Hercules, which kind of surprises me because as we discussed last week, I think the lyrics for Hercules are really bad. <laughs> uh, and I think the lyrics of these songs are mostly very clever. Yeah. Uh, and then Wilder did the music. One of these guys, let me see. It's Zippel. Zippel, one of his most recent projects is Spamilton, colon, an American parody. Oh. Oh, boy. Okay. A parody of Hamilton I know nothing about, but it just, just makes me cringe thinking about it. Agreed. And then for the score... <laughs> Which is really important to this movie because, it again, it has so many sequences that are just music. They got an absolute king, Jerry Goldsmith. Yep. After, you know, trying four other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But and who had to work really quick. I mean, the trailer hilariously uses a song from the movie Dragonheart <laughs> because that that late they didn't have music for the movie. Yeah, but they brought on Goldsmith and Jerry Goldsmith. Man, he is, in my opinion, one of the greats. He has done so many amazing scores 
But my favorite piece of music of his, and and certainly one of the most famous, if not the most famous, is he wrote the theme for Star Trek The Motion Picture yep. that ended up being the theme song for the other Star Trek movies and Next Generation. Yep. Star Trek already had a great theme song, and he was like, you know what? I can top that. I can make it better. And he did. It's so dee 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 it's it's it makes your heart sore um he's he's incredible i mean again we can't go through all his credits but (laughs) he's great um and the score for this is so so good it is very good he might even be better than Mankin. i know that's blasphemy (laughs) but i don't know the movie did pretty well I believe it was definitely seen as a return to form made 300 million on a reported $90 million budget. Um, so it was made relatively cheaply and it, it did very well. Mm-hmm. Surprising that it was so cheap with all the effects. Saving the best for last before we go into the cast. Uh, my <laughs> favorite fun fact that I already shared with you, which was Cricky. Yep. So according to one of the animators, Barry Temple, quote, The directors didn't want him in the movie. The story department didn't want him in the movie. The only people who truly want him in the movie were Michael Eisner and Joe Grant and myself because we were assigned the character. I would sit in meetings and say, well, where's the cricket and all this? Somebody else would say, oh, to hell with the cricket. (laughs) They felt Cricky was a character who wasn't necessary to tell the story, which is true. Throughout development on the film, Grant would slip sketches of Cricky under the director's door. <laughs> Where was this energy for the gargoyles? Yeah. Because Cricky's fine. I agree that, like, yeah, he doesn't need to be in the movie, but what he's really good for is he gives Mushu someone to make fun of. Yeah. Because Eddie Murphy is really good at, like, making those kinds of mean jokes. I mean, one of his first big movies... Uh, He was brought on to a movie called The Golden Child, I believe. Yeah. Which was basically like, yeah, The Golden Child. It was basically this serious, very, you know, kind of orientalist movie that really wasn't working very well, had a really dumb script and a boring plot. So they basically just brought him on to make fun of it, like in the movie. (laughs) And it kind of works because of it. But you don't want Mushu making fun of Mulan because pitting Mushu against Mulan would be a disastrous choice. Good thing they didn't do that in this movie. <laughs> so it's good to have Cricky for somebody he can make fun of. Like, And I wonder if that's the story department being like, man, I hate we have to include this Cricket character. Let's write a bunch of mean jokes. <laughs> but it works. That way he's got someone to talk to when he's not really interacting with Mulan, but he has to be there. It totally works. The Cricky stuff is good. I don't know why they're so, uh, so upset about it. <laughs> Mom, take us through the cast. All right. So first, of course, we have Ming-Na Wen as Fa Mulan. And uh, she, of course, is now a very popular actress. Um, and she gets to be in all the Disney properties because not only is she Disney princess here in Mulan, and then she's also Melinda May in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So she's in the Marvel Universe. And now she's in the Star Wars Universe as Fennec Shand, from The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett. And I think she's also in The Bad Batch. Yes. So she is in all the things. It is funny because like when this movie came out, she was definitely not well known. I mean, she'd been in a few things. She was yep. in The Joy Luck Club. That's kind of considered her breakout 
movie, I think. Like, I remember when we were watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is not something I really recommend anyone do. It was so cool that it's like, oh, the like Ming-Na Wen, the woman who plays Mulan, is a major character in this. Like, isn't that fun? And now, you know, she's in the biggest one of the biggest TV shows of the year. Right. She's in the Boba Fett show. Like, (laughs) good for her. But it's just it's just funny to see how that career has evolved. Yep. And the singing voice for Mulan was Leah Salonga, who, of course, did Jasmine previously. Yeah, they actually were going to have her just be the voice of this character, but they didn't like her boy voice. (laughs) Yeah, you got to be able to do both. Yeah, they're very manly and uh, tough. And as you mentioned, Eddie Murphy as Mushu, a comedian and actor in many movies. He's been in a lot of series, the Beverly Hills Cop series, Donkey in the Shrek series. Very prolific actor. Yeah, I think he's much better in this than in Shrek, and I'll explain why I think that is. No, you don't like uh, Shrek. (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, true, I am biased, but I I also, yeah. Anyway, uh, I will say, if you haven't seen it and you are an adult, uh, there's a movie on Netflix that came out in 2019, Dolomite Is My Name, that I really, really love. I, I wanted him to get an Oscar for it, which I was still in 2019 dumb enough to think that was a thing that might happen. But, (laughs) you know, he's still he's kind of doing stuff. He's kind of, I think, on the verge of a comeback. And I'm glad because, of course, he made a bunch of stuff that was terrible, uh, such as Shrek. Mm -hmm. But I mean, at the top of his game, like he was one of the funniest guys ever. He's so good. Uh, Let's see. B.D. Wong as Captain Lee Shang. I mainly think of him as uh, Henry Wu in the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World series. Actually, he's mainly in the Jurassic World movies. He's in like all of them, apparently. But he did have a very small role in Jurassic Park. And of course, uh, it's his Mongolian barbecue. <laughs> that's a that's a joke for those of you who live in the small area serviced by BD's Mongolian barbecue. And his singing voice is provided by Donny Osmond of Donnie and Marie. I mean, like, <laughs> he's so famous. I feel like, what do you even have to say about him? <laughs> Miguel Ferrer as Sean Yu, our villain, mainly a TV and voice actor. Um, there wasn't much I have specifically, like, seen him or heard him in that I'm like, ah, oh, I remember, remember him from this. But I know that you're a big Twin Peaks fan and he's in, he's in that. He's not just in that. He is my favorite character in that. There you go. He's one of these guys who I just always love seeing in anything. Like, he's got a pretty decent-sized role in RoboCop. He shows up in, funnily enough, Star Trek Three, <laughs> Search for Spock. Just for a second, but he's, like, so good for that set. Like, again, he's, he's one of those guys. He never had a huge role other than Twin Peaks probably is his biggest one. Um, but every time he's in stuff, I'm happy. And I never realized it was him in this movie, in part because he's, you know, he's a white guy playing an Asian character and we wouldn't do that these days. But Mm -hmm. he's doing a different voice like that's not what he normally sounds like. He is specifically being deeper and scarier than he normally is. (laughs) Knowing that helped me appreciate the character of Sean Yu and realize like, okay, this is not the most complex Mm -hmm. villain to be sure, but he's really like doing a real performance. Yeah. I think Ferrer was just a guy with a lot of integrity and he died pretty recently, which was quite sad. Mm-hmm. Next, we have uh, June Foray as Grandmother Fa, one of the best characters, by the way. Yes. And she, of course, is an extremely prolific voice actress. 
She's like the original voice actress, I feel like. She apparently did additional voices for Disney as far back as Snow White. So we did mention her, I'm pretty sure, as Lucifer in Cinderella. She's also the squaw in Peter Pan. You know, she's just got a few things. But she's mainly well known for Rocky from Rocky and Bullwinkle, Granny from Looney Tunes, and some of my favorites. She's of some voices in the Gummy Bears, like Grammy Gummy. Mm -hmm. And in DuckTales, Magic of Dispel, and Ma Beagle, and others. She's just like... And by this point, she's like archetypal grandma voice. You need a grandma voice? Get June Foray. She's also Cindy Lou Who Mm -hmm. in the, you know, in the classic Chuck Jones, the Grinch. Yeah, she's. Yeah, she can do other voices, but she also did like lots of grandmas. Right. But no, an absolute legend. Yeah. And it's funny that she also had a different singing voice considering that she has one singing line. Like, I think June (laughs) could have done it. It's fine. But they got Marnie Nixon to do her singing voice. And she is one who frequently did other people's singing for them. Like, that is her claim to fame, practically. (laughs) She was a professional ghost singer. Yes, (laughs) she did. She sang in My Fair Lady for Audrey Hepburn. Um, There were a couple other movies from that era that, you know, she was the singing voice of. (laughs) But yeah, she did it. She did it a lot. I think it's Sun Tech O. As Faju, yep. Mulan's father. Uh, he's mostly a TV actor. I didn't see anything that he's done that I'm like, oh, yeah, I know him from that. While casting, the production c- team sought out Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, or Korean vocal talents, which is like, probably should have just been all Chinese. Again, that's probably how we right. do it today. At the time, you know, it was very good of them to at least get Asian <laughs> actors, but it's like... true. It's just funny to me that a, a gentleman named Soon Tech O, <laughs> which is a very Korean name, is uh, is Faju. Yeah. And then uh, her mother's voiced by Frida Fo Shen as Fa Li. Again, mostly a TV actor and some bit parts in movies. Right. Harvey Fierstein is Yao. King of the Rock. So if... Yao. <laughs> yes. If So Harvey Fierstein, legend of Broadway cinema like wrote plays, starred in plays, you know, a huge deal. Something uh, I didn't know as a kid and was very surprised to know. So some of our listeners may be surprised to know as well. Um, that's just his voice. Well, yeah, because, I mean, he's he's a character in uh, the movie Independence Day and it's the same voice. Yes, he's a he's an you know, he's been a very prolific voice actor as well. Sounds like he destroyed his voice somewhere along <laughs> the way, you know? Exactly. That's the thing. He's a very prolific voice actor because he has that voice, which is the result of an overdeveloped vestibular fold in his vocal cords. <laughs> they actually like have analyzed why his voice sounds <laughs> the way it does. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's. It's weird, but the the funny thing is that it happened to him in puberty, right? It overdeveloped in puberty. Prior to puberty, he was a soprano in a professional boys choir. (laughs) And now he sounds like he's been doing too many cigarettes. (laughs) I know it's it's true. He sounds like the living embodiment of cigarettes. (laughs) Yeah, great guy. Still with us. Yep. Getty Watanabe, I think is how you say it. actor whose name the name of the actor who does Ling 
uh, his most notable role that I saw that I was like, ah, he's the voice of Professor Bob Chen, who is one of the uh, friends of Kim Possible's father in the Kim Possible cartoon. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> Great. And his singing voice is uh, Matthew Wilder, who, as we mentioned, wrote the songs. Yeah. <laughs> so he's the one going, my manly ways and turn of phrase are sure to thrill her. Ouch. <laughs> I hate it. It's I, horrible. I don't like that part. Yeah. It's painful. It's very, it's intending to be painful. Yeah, but it's still painful. We have Jerry Tondo as Chin Po. Hi, Chin Po. <laughs> James Hong as Chifu, who I mainly think of from the uh, Big Trouble in Little China, where he's the villain. Yeah, he's been in a lot of Hong Kong cinema. He's often playing, you know, a, a dweeby uncle or kind of a sycophant. So, hey, <laughs> why not? Yep. Pat Morita as the Emperor of China, Mr. Miyagi himself from Karate Kid. Great as always. George Takei as the first ancestor. Yep. Which is, of course, Sulu on Star Trek, the original series and all the other movies related to that. Which uh, he was the first one where I was like, oh, that's George Takei. And then I went, that's not a Chinese man. <laughs> but yeah, who does so much Star Trek on this episode? Indeed. Miriam Margol- Margolis? Margolis. Margolis. I think. As the matchmaker. Most people will probably know her as Professor Sprout in the Harry Potter movies. But she's also Aunt Sponge in the James and the Giant Peach uh, movie that you loved as a child. Also from 96. Uh, and she's in Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence in a in a role that like got her nominated for an Oscar. And it's an ex- I think. Or did she win it? I don't know. Maybe not. It's one of those super memorable supporting roles where she's in one scene and you're like, well, that's the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and then we have James Shigeta as General Lee, who is Takagi from Die Hard. Shocked. Shocked <laughs> that this was not uh, Brian Blessed. When I heard it, I was like, oh, I bet that's Brian Blessed. It's not. It's not. Nope. It's Takagi. <laughs> and of course, Frank Welker's back as Cricky and Khan, Mulan's horse. You can't not get Welker. Can't not get him. He's got to be there. And then you've got, uh, you know, various, many, many additional voices yeah, definitely. The only one I want to highlight is uh, the aforementioned Chris Sanders, uh, the writer, as Mulan's dog. Little brother. Very funny. <laughs> bark, 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 bark. I guess they thought he did the best fast yappy noise. I don't know. It is funny that little brother just sounds like he's saying bark rather than barking <laughs> to some extent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Bark, 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 bark. <laughs> Honestly, if you're going to cut, I don't mind his one appearance. Right. But if you're going to cut an animal companion, like that's that's the one you don't need. All right. So uh, should we talk about Star Trek? <laughs> I stopped paying attention, but I think we're talking about Star Trek. <laughs> no, no, we're talking about Mulan. <laughs> uh, we can do that, too. So this movie starts with a great shot of the Enterprise of, of ink paintings. <laughs> Watercolor on paper. Which I found out all the Mandarin in this movie is uh, actually traditional Chinese. It's not modern Mandarin. I shouldn't say Mandarin. It's not modern Mandarin, but it is traditional Chinese and they got it right. Well, that's good. Our first actual scene is an attack on the Great Wall by our bad guy, Sean Yu. Which is very cool. You know, all the flaming arrows. Yep. Sean Yu is not the most interesting or complex villain. He's definitely not a cackling maniac, 
but he's just kind of this force of nature. He's pure presence, both in how he's drawn and in Ferrer's performance. And that works. And of course, the button on this scene is the great. Now all of China knows you're here. And he just says, good. Yep. And we immediately have the smash to some like CGI doors uh, that open to the Emperor's Palace. Like this beginning really wastes no time, which I appreciate. We know the Emperor is a good guy because he's like, no, send the army to protect my people, not me. Mm-hmm. As you, and you know immediately that his uh, counselor there, Tifu, is awful because he's like, what? <laughs> right. A lot of the Chinese names that uh, were not in the original poem are puns. So Chifu literally means to bully. Makes sense. Because he's a bully. Yeah, and he sucks. And uh, the emperor says that uh, a single grain of rice may tip the scale. And we have a match cut to Mulan eating rice. Yep. Which is, you know, clever. Where she's studying for her matchmaker exam. (laughs) Yeah. And she's writing a cheat sheet on her arm. Which, kids, if you're listening, always do that. (laughs) Yeah, you'll never get caught. (laughs) Even if they catch you, they probably won't care. (laughs) At least if you're going to public school in Kansas. Uh, So this is where um, we see Mulan is having to rush around because she's supposed to be um, heading to the village to prepare for her meeting with the matchmaker. And her innovative plan for feeding the animals is to tie a bag of seed to her dog, little brother, and give him a bone to like lure him with and he just runs around and the chickens chase him and eat the scene. Right. I mean, it's a very funny scene. Right. Leading to the great, you know, delivery from Soon Tech. Oh, of please, please help her. <laughs> As he's praying in the shrine. Yeah. I have to say this clumsiness doesn't really come back is something that I'd never thought of. What doesn't come back? Her clumsiness. Like in this oh, opening, she's kind of clumsy. And not outright dumb, but she makes a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I think of it less as that she's dumb and more that she's moving too fast for herself. Do you know what I mean? There you go. She's got one of those brains that just works a mile a minute. She's actually highly intelligent and she can't be bothered with all these mundane things and keeping track of details like that. That's a really great thought. Yeah, because that's a thing. One thing I like about her in this movie is that you know, once she's gets going, she's really smart. That's how I always interpreted this early part is that's what's going on, you know, with, you know, when the cup gets dropped and she brought a spare, it's just, you know, she just knows, you know, sometimes things happen and I'm just going to be prepared for it rather than try to prevent it. Right. There you go. She is engineer mindset for sure. Exactly. And that's why she does the whole thing with little brother in the seed. Don't not break it. Plan for how it's going to break. By the way, Again, another reason I think I may not have seen this movie since the VHS era. I noticed so much more like little visual details this time. (laughs) One thing that really made me laugh here is little brother eating the entire bone and getting a bone shaped head. Yep. That was the other thing you were commenting on stuff and going, is that really, you know, was that always there? And I'm like, yeah. And you must definitely not have seen it since you were much younger. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I still remembered like pretty much the entire plot. It's just these background things like it's possible that I haven't watched it since I was a kid, but I watched it 400 times in those, you know, 11 years. So (laughs) made up for it. So then we meet Mulan's mother in the town. So we have our mom status. 
Mulan's mother is alive the entire movie. She even has a grandmother. She has full suite of parental figures. Yep. Who is also alive the entire movie. You know, they they took the right thing from Pocahontas where they were like, you know what's fun in a Disney movie? Wacky grandma. Wacky grandma all the way. So she picks a cricket to test if it's lucky. She covers her eyes and crosses the street, causing chaos and mayhem in her wake. And she determines because she didn't get hurt. It's a lucky cricket. Right. I like that the bit for Cricky, I always interpreted it as, especially at the end, you know, when Mushu says you are one lucky bug, I always interpreted it as the cricket itself is lucky. Like the cricket manages to escape scrapes. It does not bestow luck on you. <laughs> it itself has luck. Yeah, could be. That luck mostly being getting into bad situations and not, you know, getting hit by uh, <laughs> ye ancient car. Yeah. So then we have our first song, Honor to Us All. I like every song in this movie. I think this is probably one of the best soundtracks of the Renaissance era. Like, yeah. well, the best suites of songs and soundtracks. When we were preparing just to even to watch this movie again, I got this song in my head the entire day. It's it's a good one. It's very catchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it obviously incorporates a lot of, you know, Chinese instruments. Yep. And uh, it's a fun, like this whole sequence where she's getting dressed is fun like i love whenever a movie shows process right like the process of something happening so it's fun to see like you know she has to get the face paint she has to get the lipstick and she has to take a bath and of course you know wacky grandma's like and even you can't blow it (laughs) also you're right talk about how smart she is like They do so much good work here. Yep. Where, you know, as the song is going on, she like wins a game of checkers. She helps a girl get her doll back from a bully. She's doing all kinds of things. They're really setting up her character in this scene, not just setting up the bridal outfit with the matchmaker, you know. Right. And again, talking about like, I think the lyrics of this song are more clever. Like we are meeting our matchmaker, you know, it's fun. Yes. And uh, she doesn't really want to be a bride, but it's a thing she has to do. So she's doing it. That's how girls bring honor to the family. She meets this ridiculously evil matchmaker. (laughs) Scary, scary bad. I think I was more scared of the matchmaker than Sean (laughs) Yu as a kid. Believable. Cricky gets loose, causes trouble. Mulan also causes some of her own trouble. Yep. In that she gets some ink on the matchmaker's hand and she draws a mustache on her face. It's all just very funny. Like, I was just laughing, even though I remembered all of it. Reflect before you snack, you know? (laughs) Um, act. (laughs) And then the matchmaker lights her butt on fire, (laughs) like Disney butt gag. Yep. It's funny when a butt is on fire. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just one of those, like, errors keep compounding scenes until eventually... She's told she will never bring her family honor. I did notice that some of the clouds of smoke and dust in this movie look a little bit like the swirly ones from Hercules, though I think they're more trying to be like the um, Chinese art style. But it's just a similar swirly smoke style. Yes, it is. Ancient. Yeah. Ancient artwork. And then reflection, which is it's 
really impossible for me to pick a favorite song from this one. But Reflection is a beautiful song. It is a beautiful song. I was thinking it may be my favorite of the I Want songs. It might be. It's a very, very good one. Yeah, I mean, part of your world is also incredible, but I just I love this. And it's like heartbreaking where how it starts with like, I will never pass her a perfect bride or a perfect daughter. <sighs> like, yeah, it, yeah, who among us hasn't felt that? Like, oh, I'm the I'm the screw up kid. You always think you're the screw up kid. It's true. And maybe you are, but <laughs> it's fine. It's fine to be the screw up kid. I love towards the end of this song where she's in the the shrine and there's so many reflections of her face in the markers in the shrine and you see her face split so many times like just partial yes and reflections are shown throughout this movie like it's a constant running theme and motif and you know the idea of when will my reflection show who i am inside like the time in the movie where she feels like that is when she's disguised as a man, you know, like, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting. It's really good. So then she has a, a really uh, beautiful moment with her father where he talks about how the, you know, the blossom that blooms the latest can be the most beautiful is the most rare and beautiful being like, you know, I still love you, even if you're right going to be a late bloomer <laughs> right he's still at this point very much like you know well you you still need to be a bride he's later he's gonna you know get her with the you need to know your place but he's nice you like him you feel like this is a good relationship yeah that you will care about when it becomes important momentarily and he you know he at least is willing to give her what the matchmaker will which is Not you will never bring your family honor, but I'm confident you will eventually bring your family honor. Right. I'll give you some more time. Then we we are summoned by Chifu, the emperor's consul, has come to their little village for with the conscription notices. You know, this is the classic moment in every Disney movie where you have the draft. (laughs) I mean, I will say, I think this movie, and again, I think it's telling that this is the first post Katzenberg film. He really had no involvement in this, but like it gets away from the Renaissance formula we've been talking about. You know, we don't have the we don't have the Broadway number opening. The I want song isn't exactly an I want song to the same level. There isn't a villain song, you know, no, no villain song. It's it's still, you know, Disney movies still going to Disney movie, but it's a lot less. It doesn't feel like you can just map this one on to Little Mermaid one-to-one. Very true. As you can with so many others from the 90s. Of course, the Mulan's family name is called, so her father goes out, even though he has been in, he has previously been in the war and has been injured and so walks with a cane and all that. And Mulan shames him by saying that he can't go because he's been hurt before. And of course... He sends her back inside and she gets chastised. Yeah, this movie is very hung up on honor and comes up with a really good message, I think, which is like, who cares about honor? Like, we're all obsessed about honor. That's dumb. Like, do good things instead of sticking to whatever rules we've made up for society. Um, But this is another great silent scene, you know, where the score is just carrying it, which is 
you know, Faju taking the sword. And for a moment, you see the great warrior he was, but then he falls. And, you know, you said it while we were watching it, like he knows he will die. Indeed. And his family knows he will die. So their dinner is a very sad, quiet meal. And Mulan, of course, tries to protest and is told, this is where she's told, her father says, I know my place. It's time you learned yours. Painful. So, you know, she runs out into the rain and is crying. And and you know, one thing about this movie over like Hercules or Hunchback, the wacky grandma is in this scene and she's quiet. I don't think she says anything. She certainly doesn't make a joke, right? Like no. She's also sad. Yeah. I don't know if she's supposed to be you know, father's mother or mother's mother. They don't ever make it clear. Yeah, I guess I always assumed mother's mother just because they seem to be hanging out. But that might just be like, you know, oh, the women's place. So whatever. But you're right. They don't specify. But we don't need wacky grandma cracking jokes. We'll need her to do that later. For now, this scene has to be serious. And it is. And then she runs out, as you say, and she looks at her reflection In the rain puddle. Yep. Then you can see she gets an idea. I think actually first she's seeing the silhouette of her parents um, inside the house and they're kind of having a little bit of a disagreement too. Her mother is like, obviously also very upset and sad that Faju is planning to go to war and die. Right. And Mulan makes a plan. I think this has still got to be my favorite scene. Like, it's, it's a great so choice. good. I'm, I mean, there are some several great scenes. I love this whole movie. But it's just such a powerful moment. This, what is it, sequence six? <laughs> sequence six, yes. But no, it is. It is a Goosebumps machine. And it the is. score Jerry Goldsmith does where he's using like synth, which I don't believe he uses anywhere else in this movie. Right. And she takes this conscription scroll and leaves the special hair comb she'd been given for the day. She cuts her hair and puts on her father's armor and uh, rides away on her horse, Khan. And the horse doesn't recognize her, which is a good like the horse doesn't. It is a good moment where she goes in with the armor on the horses, like doesn't recognize her for a moment until she speaks to it. But even though she's speaking to the horse, all we hear is the music. And that's good. Too. Yes. Like we don't need to hear that. It's. It's a very silent scene until she says, you know, something like "ya" when she's racing off. Yes, but she she rides off and grandma like wakes up. Yeah, because she suddenly realizes and we're all freaking out because we all realize what Mulan has done. And they can't stop her because if they reveal her, she'll be killed. Right. So then we have the scene with the ancestors waking up. Yes. Mushu's first line. I live. <laughs> 10,000 yeah. years. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love Mushu. Obviously, I think he's a very successful comedic character. And I think the reason he works better in this than in Shrek, other than it just being a better movie, but <laughs> is because in Shrek, Katzenberg, you know, famously was just like, do whatever. Like, pretend we don't even have a script, just ad lib. And ad libbing can be very funny, but. There's too much of that in the Shrek movies, I think. And there's too much just like donkeys singing songs and being annoying and like doing pop culture references and and just going on and on and on. I'm sure there's some of that in this. 
there's definitely a lot of parts that feel like that kind of humor, but he can also be a character and he has this specific comedic game, which is he used to be a guardian. He wants to be a guardian again. He genuinely wants to protect Mulan, which is nice, but he's a little, he's like a shoelace. (laughs) (laughs) He's useless. Yeah. And it's just a, Super funny character design for him to be this little worm and to be so small. Tiniest dragon. He's travel sized for your convenience. He is. He's travel sized for your convenience. I love that line. Ring Ring the the gong. gong. Yep. He's demoted to the gong ringer to wake up all the ancestors. And all this stuff with the ancestors is funny. And again, like with Disney movies, when you're dealing with these broad emotions, it's a good trick to just like have a silly scene and then have a serious scene or vice versa. If you can do it right, like right. we've had all this very serious stuff. We've actually been thinking about death in a Disney movie. Uh-huh. So now let's have Mushu and the ancestors. It's awaken the guardians. This is a story detail I had forgotten is that Mushu somehow led to ancestor Fa Ding being decapitated. <laughs> Yeah. And that's why he was demoted. (laughs) Yep. Kind of want to know that story. I know you kind of do. I mean, it's, of course, funnier that you don't. But that's that's what's so great about it is that you and the resentment of like, he still hasn't let it go. (laughs) What with him being decapitated for eternity. It's true. And Takei is good in this, like for what they need him to do. Right. Again, which is just kind of be a presence. He's he's good. So Mushu said to awaken the great stone dragon who doesn't wake up for some reason. Unknown why, but he breaks. (laughs) He breaks. Mushu breaks it. Mushu kills one of the guardians. I'm never sure is like, is the guardian actually the statue or does it just kind of come and inhabit the statue because it's a spirit? I'm not really sure how the mythology works, but uh, yeah, agreed. But I have always interpreted it as he kills the great stone dragon because I think that's (laughs) the funniest option. Like he's such a screw up, not unlike Mulan. He's such a clumsy screw up at the beginning that he has not only gotten a guy decapitated while trying to protect him, <laughs> he has also killed the great stone dragon. <laughs> yep. And so, of course, he uses the head of the great stone dragon to pretend like I'm off to protect Mulan. <laughs> and then he's like, and I forgot what I forgot was that he's like, then, oh, now what am I going to do? Right. And Cricky actually shows up and convinces him to go after Mulan and then Mushu gets the idea, oh, if I make Mulan a war hero, then they'll take me back to being a guardian again. And so that's that's his motivation to go be in the movie. Yep. Then we uh, we have this brief scene with the Huns uh, where they're riding across. They encounter a couple Chinese soldiers. Uh, they want to use one of them to deliver a message. And this this is a big moment for me, even though it's not a huge moment in the movie. When he asks, how many men does it take to deliver a message? And the creepy archer guy goes, one. Yeah. And, you know, we cut to black before he fires the arrow. I remember watching this movie. It can't have been the first time I watched it, but this was like one of the first times I thought about death <laughs> or like in a movie. Like I d- have a distinct memory of watching this as a kid and realizing that what that scene meant was that the Huns were going to kill one of the two guys. Yeah. Which I just like hadn't put together before because I was too young. Right. And that like kind of disturbing me, you know? Yeah. Realizing like 
oh, these guys are like killing people. <laughs> and while I obviously don't feel that way now because I'm no longer a baby. Right. I think these are like these villains are darker. Like this is a movie where people get arrowed and killed and, you know, there's battles and it's war. They do war with actually a lot of death as opposed to making it silly fun times or anything. Yeah. But it's a, I still find it a powerful moment, if only because of, again, that memory <laughs> being forced to confront mortality. Yeah. Uh, and then Mushu introduces himself to Mulan. He's kind of doing a like black preacher bit, you know, <laughs> I love when he says to Cricky, if you're going to be here, you're going to work like this is the start of. All right, Cricky. Yes. If you're going to be in this movie, you claim to be a lucky cricket. You're going to help me out. Right. And he is the powerful, the pleasurable. The indestructible. Indestructible? I think he's indestructible. Indescribable. I don't know. Either way. It's probably indestructible. Because then he gets stomped on by Khan, the (laughs) horse, immediately. Yes. Um, And they got some really funny sound effects for some of this stuff. And I don't know if this was the script or if this was a Murphy ad lib, but I love the runner of him referring to the horse as a cow. (laughs) Calling her Bessie and whatever else. It's so funny. It makes no sense whatsoever. That's what's so funny about it. It comes from nowhere. (laughs) And of course, this leads to probably the line from this movie we quote the most, maybe the funniest joke in the whole movie, which is when Mushu gets all upset and he goes, dishonor on your whole family. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. (laughs) (laughs) Dishonor on your cow. (laughs) See, that's the thing. It's not just a pop culture reference. Or or anything like that, which, you know, OK, I'll stop complaining about Shrek and I'll complain about Hercules. Right. Like it's it's not just something like that. That's like a very specific joke that you had to spend right. a whole scene building up to with the cow bit <laughs> to get to the hilarious phrase dishonor on your cow, <laughs> which is only hilarious because it's not a cow. It's a horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then she's going into the camp and Mushu Again, I like that Mushu is actually trying to help her. Like, I like that he is trying to be a guardian. He's a good guy. He is. Uh, He is unfortunately dumb. He's very bad at his job. He's very bad. Gives very bad advice for uh, how to be a man. I mean, he starts off good where he's like, punch him. That's how guys make friends. Yes. And that works. But then he goes too far and says, now pat him on the butt. I mean, that's that's just what dudes be doing. We meet Yao Ling and Qian Po. Yes. Who all have. Okay, Ling doesn't have a lot. I never really understood why we needed Ling in this equation. But, uh, you know, Qian Po is very funny. He's very serene and he's a big guy. And of course, Yao is just a little angry guy. He's your classic, you know, compensating guy with the crazy Harvey Firestein voice. Ling is also there. He's also there. He's the he's the one who thinks he's all that, but he's not. He's the Zeppo of this comedy trio. (laughs) And so, of course, this uh, starting interaction starts a fight that spreads to the entire camp and spills rice everywhere. And there's a whole and Mulan is trying to, like, hide and escape from all this while the everybody's just punching everybody. We have a little scene in one of the in the tent with the general promoting Li Shang to captain. Dad status. The general is his dad. Blatant nepotism. That's the status. Yes, indeed. Impressive military lineage. (laughs) (laughs) Rampant corruption. Indeed. Chifu is also there 
And um, he, of course, is against everything that is good. So, you know, he's against Shang getting to be captain. He's almost too annoying, Chi Fu. Like, I don't know. It, he's a little too extreme. I go back and forth because, like, they want him to be very extreme. Like, at least the movie knows he sucks. I think that at least they mostly give him to us in small doses. Yes, that's also true. So the general and the main part of the army leave as Captain Li Shang must get to work trying to bring these recruits into order. And there's a whole silly scene where he's asking Mulan what her what his name is. Right. <laughs> and he of course, Mulan didn't think about this in advance, apparently. Yes. Um, she forgot to pick a fake name. Eventually, she settles upon Ping. And and Ping is it's a pun, but there's disputes as to what the pun actually means. Um, but the, the most accepted interpretation seems to be that fa can mean flower and ping can mean pot. So fa ping is flower pot. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, he's uh, she's got a name and it's a boy's name, too. And he's disciplining <laughs> them by making them clean up. Nobody likes Ping. Yep, because it's Ping's fault that they're kind of in trouble. Sort of. I mean, it's not just Ping's fault. And uh, her Mulan's tent is outside the camp. I always assume this is as a punishment. Like, yeah, you started the fight. You have to have your tent out here. But it's also very convenient. Or if it wasn't a punishment, it was everyone else in the camp being like, you can't sleep next to us, you know, like Indeed, she's like, like, I'm going to get beaten up. Yep. But she wakes up in the morning. This is one of the most famous Mushu lines, I think, is when he makes breakfast and it's happy to meet you. <laughs> but my favorite joke is him, you know, giving advice like she's going to school. Yeah, and, like the first day of school. And her specifically her going, well, I don't want to kick the other kids, butts." <laughs> Is war. She has fallen behind, but she catches up with the camp. Everybody's bad at being in the army. Li Shang fires an arrow to the top of a big pole, and you got to go get it with weights on. Nobody the can do it. Weights are discipline and strength. That's You'll need <laughs> both to reach the arrow. Thank you. <laughs> Nobody can do it. And then we get what I'm going to pick is my favorite scene, which is I'll make a man out of you, which, of course, this song, it's a great scene. The too. song and the title of it is meant to be, you know, somewhat ironic in nature, right? Because you can't make a man out of Mulan. Uh, and this movie uses a lot of gendered language very pointedly, I think, to be like, you know, why do we say that being a good soldier is being a man? Like even in language, we equate those two things. And I get that. Uh-huh. On the other hand, it's a really cool training montage <laughs> that gives me goosebumps. And it is such an epic song. I mean, this is one of my absolute favorite Disney songs. That's why I had to do it for the podcast song. But, you know, just again, the opening. Let's get down to business. And you're like, I want to get down to business. We better listen to this guy. <laughs> you hear that song? Yeah, there's no kidding. And, you know, this is this is how I'm trying to be. This is my 2022 energy <laughs> is to be as swift as the coursing river. <laughs> Mysterious as a dark side of the moon, etc. You know, this is this is what being a dude is all about. <laughs> yes. And, and and for the and for the ladies, whenever I think of some of the lyrics of this song, I'm like, <laughs> men are not like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mysterious as the dark side of the moon. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an excellent point. That's the thing. Like it works. 
works it on works, two though. levels. It works. it works ironically, but you also like it. Training montages are cool. And it's cool, you know, when Mulan is actually fired during this song. Yes, yeah, she then fails she, and she's being sent home. Because she's very clever, she is able to figure out how to use the weights to climb to the top and get the apple. The arrow. Or get the arrow. <laughs> and she, uh, I was getting confused where she shoots the apple with the arrow. You know what I mean. Yes. But uh, she climbs to the top and uh, I like that, you know, she has to face some hardship. Like it takes her all night to get up there. Like she really is right. learning and, and training and figures out how to, you know, how to be a soldier. And so does everybody else. Well, she kind of starts off a little behind everyone because she's not as naturally yeah. strong as they are. She is able to improve just like they do. Right. And of course, it ends on that awesome red background and everybody doing the yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I, I just remember being a little kid like I would get up when this song was playing like <laughs> this is you got to run around the room. You got to get some energy out. The song's getting you pumped. <laughs> I would have been a nightmare if we saw this in the theater. <laughs> Very true. So, yeah, I got to pick it as my favorite. But really, I like all of the songs and I do like is sequence six like that. That was my close second, because those are the two parts of this movie where I got legitimate goosebumps. Indeed. Got to check in on the Huns again. So it's the uh, it's the Falcon who brings a doll back and they are able to use it to figure out that the army is in the Tung Shao Pass. And it's very, you know, it's very creepy about it like, is. It's creepy and dark. And yeah, the, the little girl. We'll be, we'll be missing her. her doll. It's like, ooh, nasty. Don't don't want him to come. They give you just enough time to forget this thing with the doll and that the Tung Shao Pass is in trouble before they call it back in a very powerful way. So, of course, then we have the bat scene. And then we have all the other guys deciding to take it. Everybody, you know, magically decided to take a bath at the same time. <laughs> Guess the smell got real bad. There's a good chance they just saw Ping doing it and were like, oh, yeah, I guess I should take a bath. Oh, Ping can't be the cleanest guy in the camp. I'm going to be the cleanest guy in the camp. <laughs> Again, this is another scene that uses a lot of, you know, very pointed gendered language where like Yao's talk about there's nothing you girls can do about it. Ling says, don't be such a girl right before he shrieks. <laughs> uh-huh. Again, we're, we're, you know, we're making this point of like, hey, you know, even in modern English, like in slang, like... We're putting down women all the time. Right. Nothing, nothing we love more than doing that. And I like that it it's funny that it takes till this point where we have a proper, a really proper introduction to these three friends of hers, Yao and Ling and Qian Po. But I think it's actually smart because you aren't getting their names at the same time. Like you're getting a lot of information when you get to the camp. Yeah. Now you know like who Li Shang is and you know kind of how the camp is working. So now it's like, oh, by the way, this is who these three guys are like. Right. They're not just dumping it on you and expecting you to remember. And I also like, you know, as dumb as Mushu is so much of the time, he actually saves the day here. He, he does. He bites Ling on the behind. Another, you know, Disney butt joke. And he complains about it. But, you know, he's he's <laughs> he's right. <laughs> yep. I was vile. You owe him big. Of course, you know, I never want to see a naked man ever again. As they all run past her. I just love the look they animated on her face. Right. <laughs> Li Shang is arguing with Shifu 
where he's like, we're ready to go to war. And Chief Wu's like, I'm going to write a report that makes you never go to war because I'm a jerk. Basically, that's that's the whole deal. Milan hears this, tries to give Li Shang like, you know, uh, a little pep talk. He's like, I'll hold him and you punch. Yeah. Which is our first the first mention of, you know, oh, you like him. Oh, there's going to be romance here, which that is one criticism of this movie is that she's a strong, independent woman. She don't need no man. There doesn't need to be romance. Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism, but I don't mind the romance. It's way better than some at the very least, you know? Yeah. Uh, and they do a little more work to build it up. And who wouldn't fall in love with Li Shang? He's a, he's a very handsome guy. But speaking of criticisms of this movie, by the way, I should have mentioned earlier, uh, every time we cover a movie uh, that's a culture not our own, we include some writings from people who are from that culture uh, in the description. And I do have one this week. Not that this is a particularly controversial movie. I mean, by and large, the only thing you can ding it on is we would use all Chinese actors today, which sure enough, they did in the when they did the new movie. But uh, I have an article called Mulan 1998, a moment of joy and anxiety for Asian American viewers. This was written in 2020 by Brian X. Chen for the New York Times. Go ahead and open it in an incognito browser so you don't have to pay them anything. <laughs> it's it's a really great article that links to a lot of other articles uh, from many other writers. So, you know, you can you can. This is why I'm sharing just this one, because you can use it to to find more readings, but it it really, I think, does a very balanced uh, discussion of like how the movie was perceived at the time by Asian audiences, how it's perceived now, uh, what's its place in the larger kind of movement that didn't really start until the late 90s of including uh, Asian performers in Western cinema more. Um, it's a really good little article, and it mostly is is on the side of the movie because, again, this this movie is well liked. Even in China, this this movie is is quite well liked, not particularly controversial. And, and one thing that article talks about as well is the positive role model this set for young girls, not just you know Asian American girls, but like for other kids to see them as beautiful. Like, funnily enough, this had such a big merchandising push. And Mulan became an official Disney princess. And that helped shift cultural perceptions of like, oh, Mulan is beautiful. Asian women are, you know, can be beautiful. Um, And I think it's interesting comparing that to we talked about how Pocahontas led to like more Native American kids being bullied. I think it's because this movie is just like a Chinese story in a Chinese world. Right. And like, you know, Chi Fu is a sucky guy, but... You don't get the you don't come away with this, even if you're a kid thinking like, oh, all Chinese people suck because it's like, no, one guy sucks, but another guy's brave. And this girl's very smart. And, you know, and some of these other guys are dumb, but at least they're good friends, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Just just setting the whole like this movie has no white people is the difference. Like it's just a movie set in China with Chinese characters. Yep. And that's as we discussed with Pocahontas, probably the best way for Disney to do these things. So anyway, uh, I forgot to mention that earlier. I apologize for bringing that up at this super weird point in the episode. <laughs> uh, Mushu has a plan. Yep. So as uh, Chifu goes to bathe, Mushu is like... And gets owned off screen, which I love. And he does. He gets owned off screen. <laughs> um, it's very funny that... Uh, so Mushu 
It's like, oh, they're ruining my plan. I have to make Mulan a war hero or they won't take me back. So to make them go to the front, uh, make it so that they have to go to the front. He has uh, dictates a message to Cricky kind of to write up a message to be from the general to the captain saying, I need you to come. But the best part is that Cricky makes typewriter noises when he's writing the characters. I love that part. But it, it achieves the goal, which is that they head off to the front. And we have, shockingly, the final song of this movie. Yeah. Uh, but you have Girl Worth Fighting For, which I've always enjoyed. This is probably the most pointed in terms of, like, showing how the men see women versus how Mulan would like to be seen. You know, how about a girl who's got a brain who always speaks her mind? Nah. This is, you know, it's a, it's an actively misogynist song, but in the context of the movie. And it's funny also, like, yeah. how piggish they are. And there's like a cute little scene of like, oh, some of the some of the ladies work in the rice fields are like a little attracted to Ping. And she's like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like the uh, at the near the beginning of it when they the guys are describing what they want. It's like imagination artwork. You know, the, the animation style is very different. That looks like the ink. The yeah. the yeah, the calligraphy. But this song is cut off. By, uh, you know, we're all having fun. Oh, what a goofy song. Oh, why is the sky this hellish shade of red? Oh, because it's a field of corpses, ladies and gentlemen. An actual field of corpses in a Disney movie that also makes it clear not only that these soldiers were killed, not only that Li Shang's father was killed, which means we have to do our favorite joke, dad status. He did. All you see is his broken feathers. But the little girl with the doll was killed. Yeah, because Mulan finds the doll. It's really powerful. I mean, it does kind of give you whiplash because it cuts off the last scene so quickly. But the characters have whiplash. It's intentionally disorienting. So it works. Yeah. And the whole point is... They did not realize what they were getting into. And you didn't realize that you were getting into this in a Disney movie. But it's it's very dark and very sad. And then they have to go on. And so, of course, it's a lot quieter because they're trying to find the Hun army. And we may never know the true story of what happened in that wagon. But somehow <laughs> one of the rockets, I think they call them cannons, actually, one of the cannons gets launched and explodes and now their position is given away i'm suspecting mushu because he's the one who can make fire he <laughs> blames it on cricky though so and everyone else blames ping where it's like she was Cause, because ping was of course you know the one who's got the horse that's leading the wagon but obviously ping was clearly like four feet, feet away. away. Yeah. Yeah. Horse length away. Cause she's, I think she's, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. She's not even riding the horse. She's leading the horse. Yes. But this battle is incredible. I mean, it's yeah. so thrilling and exciting. There's so many good little beats and character moments. It's not just one continuous battle, right? It starts with like, okay, we have all the artillery firing and you know, then we're down to the last cannon. Then the Hun army charges like, 
It breathes really well. But the animation is incredible. We were looking at this with our like eyes that are now trained to recognize all the different pieces of technology. And we were like, so that's a CGI avalanche coming down on crowd TM technology horde of Huns. So apparently they upgraded their crowd TM technology. And now and that particular crowd is an upgraded version called Attila. Oh, that's funny, by the way. Yeah, so the Attila crowd technology. I mean, the crowds in this do look way better. So, yeah, I thought it was just like the skill of the directors, but it's good to know that it was also technology. But anyway, but so you have those things happening and you're doing like one of those caps, you know, zooms through it. Right. They have really used all of the special effects very well. Unsurprising since we had a special effects guy directing the movie right but this is i mean like this is jaw dropping like realizing the amount of work apparently there's actually two thousand huns that you see in this scene it's it's insane and like you know having to animate all the explosions because as you say they have those cool smoke effects like you'd have to draw all of the like right i i had been underrating this as a piece of animation uh, and I think it's underrated in general. Like, this is incredible stuff. Yeah. I know it's all computer assisted and like, but this shows the power of computers because this scene also just rules like on a narrative and emotional level. And they are expecting to die. Yeah. And a lot of them do. I think they don't really highlight this, but like the group of soldiers at the end who are all, you know, hanging on to Li Shang and Mulan looks smaller to me than the group of soldiers that was there in the beginning. Like maybe it's not intentional, but I assume that some people died in the battle. I mean, they, I mean, they probably do have some of them die. Just not the A team. Just not the, you know, our named characters. Right. They're going to try to use the last rock uh, can. I always want to say rocket. I mean, it is a rocket, but they call <laughs> it cannons. They want to use the last one to try to hit Shan Yu, but Mulan gets another idea. So she swipes it. And runs up and launches it right in front of Shan Yu. And Mushu's like, how could you miss? Because she's not aiming for him. She's aiming for the snow on the mountain to cause an avalanche to destroy the entire army. Which, it works. So Mulan has probably the highest death count (laughs) of any Disney character. (laughs) I think of the Disney princesses. uh, She's probably... Number one, I'd have to go back and check, (laughs) (laughs) but I think she is the highest KD ratio. Indeed, because she killed all almost all 2000 of those Huns. Well, we missed, of course, when when uh, when Elsa takes the throne, of course, they cut the scene of her (laughs) doing purchase. (laughs) Well, you know, some people maybe died in the snow, right? (laughs) Grim stuff between Frozen one and two. Really dark, Stalin-esque. Uh, uh. She brought Arendelle to heal. But uh, other than her, <laughs> I think, no. Um, <laughs> anyway, and uh, of course we save Li Shang as well. Yep. Shang Yu does attack Mulan. This is important that she gets wounded for later. There's some funny stuff uh, within all of this action, both with Mushu and uh, with Chien Po. <laughs> Yes, everybody getting saved by somebody else, pretty much. Yep. Um, and then Chen Po saves the whole group. 
You actually get to see the blood on her wound. She's actually bleeding. And of course, she is revealed because in order to treat her. Yes, they had to take her top off and they discovered things they didn't expect. There's a couple of things I know they're bound to notice. Um, <laughs> As Mushu says. Yeah, so this is high treason. Chifu, not grateful for the fact that his miserable little weasel life has just been saved. Indeed. You thought you were all going to die. Right. And Mulan saved all of your lives. Right. That's one thing I like about this movie is that Mulan doesn't really have to change. Like she has to grow stronger as a soldier and learn how to use her smarts a little better. But mostly like she's right about everything and everyone around her just has to accept like has to accept her for who she is. Indeed. It's not that she has to change who she is. It's that they have to accept who she is, is a good person. Right. But uh, of course, Li Sheng, who is already more amenable to this argument, he recognizes that she saved his miserable weasel life. So he does not kill her. He says a life for a life. And then we have a, an emotional little scene. There is not an emotional scene with Donkey and Shrek, but there can be because he's more of a character and not just a joke machine. You can have this emotional scene between Mulan and Mushu where, you know, Mulan drops what I think is a very interesting line where she's like, maybe I didn't do it for my father. Maybe I just did it to prove to myself I could do something right. Yeah. Which is good. Like it's a complex character motivation where it's like multiple reasons and you know, Mushu has his lovely little speech about how we're both frauds, but we're going to finish this thing. Sent. Yeah. yeah, but we're going to finish this thing together. And then Cricky says he's not a lucky cricket. And <laughs> uh, then Mushu's like, you too. And what are you, a sheep to the horse? I know. <laughs> uh, it's great. Where you can have the humor, even in this yes. moment of soul searching. And they're all basically admitting they have lied to themselves or to others in some way. Which I always interpreted it as Mushu is suggesting that Khan is a cow pretending to be a sheep. That's why he doesn't <laughs> say like a horse pretending to be a cow. <laughs> anyway, the Huns aren't dead. Uh, all the Huns who previously had a speaking line of some kind are alive. <laughs> yes, there's about five of them, plus the leader. And of course, the Falcon, because it flew above the avalanche, I presume. And uh, they're all going to have they're all going to go to this uh, big parade for the emperor and try to kill the emperor. That's that's our last ditch effort. Not winning a war with five guys, but we can kill the emperor. So the emperor is having this big parade. And of course, Mulan sees them and has to go, decides that she has to go warn the emperor or, you know, yeah. Her friends save the day. She has to go save the day. She won't just go home and let it, you know, happen as it's going to happen because they won't accept her. It's funny, though, that we're having this celebratory parade for Shang and the troops for, you know, their big defeat of the Huns. And they're all kind of sad. <laughs> right. Because they've just been through this emotional. We got our lives saved by someone that we thought was our friend and turned out to be a woman. And now we're all confused in the brains. And you can tell that like Li Shang is conflicted. And uh, the characters I think of as the three stooges. But <laughs> Ling Yao and Chen Po are like, they're like, I don't know, man. Is Mulan really so bad? You know, we told fart jokes with her in the camp, probably like <laughs> she may be a lady, but she's still a bro, dude. Um, but 
And there's a very pointed, you know, nobody's listening to her. And Musha goes, oh, you're a girl again, remember? Yeah. And, and like, there's so much more great technology in, in like this whole sequence as well. It's not as showy, but like we're using the crowd technology, the Attila. Yeah. And we're I uh, think in this one, they they did a variant they called Dynasty because. Oh, you know. I see. <laughs> Um, but there's a crowd of 3000 people in the Forbidden City here. Wow. So even more at some at some points, not obviously the whole time. And uh, there's a big, scary uh, uh, dragon costume that turns out to be uh, full of Huns. Oh, no. I like to shun you. You know, he's a dramatic guy. He knows how to make an entrance for sure. Yep. Yep. They kidnap the emperor. Mulan is like, hey, drop the battering ram. I know what to do. And I like that the three stooges, because again, we've seen previously that they are like more, they're already the most conflicted. So they're like, we're dropping the battering ram. We're following the smart lady. We'll disobey a direct order. Who cares? And then we get <laughs> another contender for favorite scene, which is the reprise of Be a Man. Of Be a Man. As where they, they're all dressing as women. <laughs> which is like, it's really funny. It is. But it's and it also kind of gives me goosebumps just because that song. But yeah, it's also really good of like being a man can be more than what you think. Right. Like being a man is not just about how you dress or what you look like or even what you cook like. But, (laughs) you know, it's about being a good if it's about anything, it's about being a good person and doing the right thing. And that's what we're all doing here. We're doing the right thing. We are being a man more now, even in our silly dresses, than we were when we were soldiers and we were jerks. Good stuff. And Shang arrives in time to go with them into the... Yeah, but he doesn't wear a dress because he's a coward. Yeah, but he he gets there in time to... They use the same technique to climb up the palace that she used to climb up and get the arrow. They sneak in. There's some more silliness. This is probably the only Disney movie to have the word concubine. Indeed. Mushu lights the falcon on fire. Turns it into like a plucked chicken. It's true. <laughs> it's so it's so menacing and creepy up to this point. And then he just is like fire at it. And right. then it's like totally skinless and it's like it, it's it is exactly a chicken now it's so funny covers its bits there's so much nudity in this movie so many naked people jokes they do manage to save the emperor from Shan Yu and escape with him gotta step in and share a line i love and uh, is no matter how the wind howls the mountain cannot bow to it indeed because Shan Yu wants the emperor to bow down before him before he kills him and he's like i can't like this, you suck so much. I cannot honor you. But I also have always found it amusing the way that after I think it's Mulan, uh, maybe it's Li Shang, whoever steps in and like hits the sword and initiates the battle. The emperor it's just Li like Shang first. Li Shang. The emperor just walks off. He's just yeah. like, goodbye. <laughs> like he just slowly serenely with his eyes closed is like and exit stage right that's been great everyone that's a wrap i'm going to craft services <laughs> but actually chimpo's gonna zip line with him and then before mulan can get away with them she has to cut the rope so that shan yu cannot follow and capture the emperor again the only criticism i have of this final scene is it's not as good as the earlier battle 
And I think generally in a movie, you want each action scene to kind of escalate. Yeah. But uh, it's still very good. It's just not as good as the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and yeah, so uh, Mushu has to go launch some fireworks. Yeah. So he basically gets the big firework to launch at Shan Yu to knock him into the entire tower full of fireworks. So he totally gets blown to bits. Get off the roof, get off the roof, get off the roof. Yes, I like how Mulan uses her fan to disarm him before that. And I do like, get off the roof, get off the roof, get off the roof when it's about to blow up. It's such a good moment because she's heroic, she's smart, she's brave, but she's also still kind of the goofy character we knew and loved from the beginning. Yep, and then the emperor confronts Mulan at the end. After Shifu says the worst thing he says in the whole movie, which is that creature's not worth protecting, by the way. Woof. He's so horrible. Then we have the, which I always think of this as the the line from the trailer. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, you took your father's armor, impersonated a soldier, and then blah, blah, everything. And then at the very end, and you have saved us all. And then the emperor bows slightly to Mulan and everyone else bows to Mulan. Right. Which like the reason the whole besides just being cool, the reason the, you know, mountain cannot bow to it line is so important is because you it's just every scene in this movie, you know, doing two things. It's that good writing. You get how important this is. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. <laughs> it's good. And then um, the emperor offers Mulan Chifu's job. Which she rejects. And I want to say, I wish this movie made it clear that he still got fired and like yeah. fed to fire ants. Maybe I would. He wouldn't bother me quite as much if he got a little more comeuppance. But yes, it is fun how it's like, all right, she can have your job because you're the worst. But she'd rather go home. And so he gives her the medal. So you bring your family honor and the sword. So all the world will know what you did for China. She gives the emperor a hug. which surprises him. It's sweet. It is. She has a super awkward moment with Li Shang. <laughs> and then the emperor walks up and is like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> the emperor is like, he's such a small character, but they really do a lot of good stuff with him. He's so good. And, you know, they got a great actor to play him. So it's it's nice. It's nice when you like all the little characters. Yeah. So Mulan does return home and her family is very happy to see her when she gives her father all the tokens of honor she brought home. He drops them and he says, of course, the other line from the trailer, the greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. And this is where I'm going to this is where I choke up. Like if I'm if I'm going to ever cry at this movie that the greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. Like, man, that's what the whole movie's been about. It's about Mulan's great. Everyone res- appreciate Mulan. <laughs> she's my best friend. And then Grandma is very funny because <laughs> she's she's playing matchmaker. Would you yep. like to stay forever? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shang shows up at the house, too. I love how, you know, just that whole stuff with Grandma there at the end where she's like, great, she brings back a sword. Why couldn't she bring back a mat? And is interrupted by him saying, is this the home of Famulan <laughs> or whatever he says? And she's like, woo, sign me up for the next war. Yes, all of her little jokes. It's a, it's a <laughs> great note to send us off on. 
Yeah. And then one more, you know, funny joke is, all right, you can be a guardian again. Yep. And then Cricky gets gong duty. Yes. And they have big ancestor party. And then we get we don't get the crappy credits cover right away. We get some other kind of anonymous song. True to your heart. Yeah, sure. Great. Whatever. Who cares? No one's <laughs> no one has ever listened to it outside of watching this movie, which is fine. But then I did not realize this crappy credits cover done by Christina Aguilera. I did not realize this was her first hit. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. She does the version of Reflection. Yeah, which is bad. But this, uh, as always, but this song landed her recording contract and and her debut album. And I can't be too mad about that. I don't I don't mind Christina Aguilera, (laughs) but uh, the credits cover is always bad. Don't do it. It's just not as good because you're like, no, I fell in love with the song from the movie. Right. Speaking of falling in love with things. Not really. (laughs) Uh, That's not what happened. Uh, It's a bad segue to sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides and reboots. Well, we got to start with uh, Mulan 2, the direct-to-video sequel from 2004. Yeah, okay, so I rewatched this. Oh, you did? As much as I could. This is one of the worst ones. Oh, it's so bad. So when we, I bought this movie on DVD, it was part of a two-pack, Mulan and Mulan 2. Um, And I only really wanted Mulan, but the only way to get it on Blu-ray was to get the sequel also. Right. And so I had it for several years. And one day I decided, you know what? I'm just going to watch Mulan 2 just so that I've seen it since I own it. You know, I might as well watch it one time. Oh, it's so bad. This was kind of our first sequel spinoffs unofficially because you were watching this while folding laundry. I happened to be at home at this point and was walking past and was like, what is this? And I sat down to watch this train wreck. Yeah. The really annoying thing about this movie is that it's like really sexist. Right. When the first movie is like probably Disney's strongest, like feminist film. I know. And the second one is so sexist. The main plot is we're going to get basically we're going to marry off Yao Ling and Qian Po. Yeah. To um, the emperor's three daughters that we've just found out about. Yeah, it's Mulan is going to marry Li Shang and she transports these three princesses from one end of China to the other. Uh, Along the way, they fall in love with Ling Yao and Qian Po. But yeah, all the girls in this movie are completely boy crazy, which is really annoying. It is, you know, again, you can debate whether or not the romance in the first Mulan is, you know, something they should have done, whether it weakens Mulan as a character. There's no debate here. This is the worst version. Yeah, it's so bad. It's like we took everything that was good in the first one and threw it into the trash and only kept the bad stuff. It's it's really bad. It's really, really bad. It's totally unwatchable. It doesn't have a villain, except maybe Mushu, because Mushu's terrible plot line in this movie is that he thinks that if Li Shang and Mulan get married, he will no longer be a guardian anymore because they'll use Li Shang's family guardians instead because she'll be, you know, Li Mulan. Part of his, yeah. Yeah. And so he tries to break up Mulan and Li Shang, which sucks again. It's I know you want Mushu to be on Mulan's side. Instead, he is the one who basically causes all the problems in this. 
on purpose and yep. <laughs> tries yep. to break him up. And that's horrible. Also, the white guy uh, doing this Eddie Murphy impression, not up to the task. <laughs> not up to the... T- it's like a professional celebrity impersonator, but man... You feel like, didn't you guys learn when you got somebody to replace Robin Williams as the genie that it's just a bad idea? Right. I mean, that's the thing. Any replacement probably wouldn't be as good, but I talked about how like I think Dan Castellaneta is actually pr- as good a replacement as they could get. No, can't say that for Mark Mosley. He's he's awful and it doesn't help you not hate Mushu in this movie. They got almost everyone else back, though, and they got Lucy Liu and Sandra Oh and Lauren Tom to be the princesses, which at least Lucy Liu and Sandra Oh got no business for sure. (laughs) I couldn't finish this one, folks. Uh, It's really terrible. Uh, Did you have any park stuff to share? Because I feel like we should save the Delarm for last. There's mainly just, um, you know, meet and greet stuff. Yeah. So uh, Mulan and uh, Mushu and even Shan Yu tend to be some of the meet and greet characters. Very rare to see Li Shang. Obviously, they are going to be more featured at Shanghai Disneyland than some of the other parks. But um, because Mulan is officially a Disney princess, even though she's the first one who's not even remotely a princess, nor does she marry a prince, but they wanted to have an Asian princess. So Mulan is it. Um, And Mulan is featured quite a bit on the uh, Once Upon a Time TV show that we've mentioned before. Um, She is one of the more major characters, though. All right. Let's get to it. In 2020, they made a a Disney live action remake or Delarm. Okay, so we both watched this for the first time for this show. This is actually a very interesting movie in its place in history because this talk about, you know, 2020 like it's history. But if this movie had done well, I really think and I said this to you at the time, like that might have been the end for theaters because this movie was Disney's big attempt to see whether at-home distribution could work. They released it. They were going to release it in theaters. They instead released it at home. They put it on Disney Plus, and you had to pay an additional $30 for it, which everyone made fun of. Not wrongly so. And if it had been a success, they probably would have just switched to a release everything on Disney Plus model, which is kind of what they want to do because it lets them completely control distribution. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. It was a massive, massive, massive financial failure as every direct-to-streaming release has been, because that's not... Movies don't make money that way. They make money in theaters, and also theaters are good, and I'm glad they will continue to exist, Yep. uh, even if they are just boxes where you go and see Spider-Man. But (laughs) at least that's something. Um, So uh, it did not do well, this Delarm. It, in fact, did very poorly, and it is... While watching it, I noted to you that this is one of the most made-for-China Western movies I've ever seen in my entire (laughs) life. So much so that I pointed out that the dialogue scenes are often cut so that you can't see the lips. There are multiple dialogue scenes where you only actually see people say one sentence or like part of one sentence. And then for the entire rest of the time, it's cut to something else to a distracting degree. Yeah, yeah. And that's all for the dub, as we found out, because you suggested that I switch to watching it in Mandarin, since most of the actors did the dubbing with English subtitles. And 
Once you do that, it actually looks more natural than the language that they're speaking. Uh, at least to me, like I'm sure if you're an actual Mandarin speaker, you can see how the lips don't line up. But it's so obvious that they cut it with the dub in mind. So strange. But Chinese people didn't like it uh, for a lot of reasons. One of the big ones being simply it's like a bargain bin Wuxia movie. And they just have Wuxia movies. They don't need to watch the the lousy. And like, again, there's 25 other Mulan movies including the Disney one that's generally well-liked in China. Yeah. Why do they need this one? And also the way that it handles chi is very weird to Chinese people. And it's just, again, it's like, it's like a watered down version of, of their, of the types of movies that they just have over there. Like, why would they, why would they care about it? Why would we care about it? So tell us about this movie and what you thought of it. Yeah, what we were saying about this movie was we thought it was too Chinese for Western tastes, but not Chinese enough for their taste. So it just sits there in the middle and nobody likes it, really. (laughs) Yes. One of the main problems is it doesn't have enough humor. We talked about how the animated movie takes you very cleverly from darker, sadder, you know, whatever moments to humorous moments up and down, back and forth. You could probably chart it and you get, you know, um, a waveform pretty much because even when you've had, even if it's just a very short moment of we're cutting back to see what Sean Yu's doing, you know, we we're just alternating to mix it up. This one has, you know, we could practically count on one hand, how many actual jokes there were. And we didn't really laugh at any of them because they just weren't that funny. The other thing is you can see Mulan's growth and progression in the animated movie where she actually has to work to become a soldier, right? In this one, she's, you know, apparently got amazing chi powers from her childhood. She doesn't have to grow, improve, or learn anything. So you feel kind of like, why are we even bothering with this journey? That is one of the most frustrating things about the whole movie, which overall, it's at least trying to do something. And even though it pretty much fails, that puts it, I said, in probably the top three Delarms. (laughs) So here's the thing. This movie is not the worst. It's not unwatchable. It's not terrible. It's just not very good. It's kind of boring. It is at least pretty. I will say there's a lot of nice color in it, you know, because so many of those other Delarms we've seen are so brown or dark. This one at least has a lot of color. It helps that there's very little CGI in it and they shot it on location. They shot it in China and you can tell and it doesn't and it's not, you know, animal characters. So it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't just look like that brown and gray total CGI mess where we got to, you know, hide the lighting and it's all shot in front of a green screen that I hate. There's there's a few moments of that, but it's mostly looks pretty good. I don't really like that they had to have the villain witch character who's basically like Mulan. She's like Dark Mulan. In the future, you know, like Dark Mulan. I was like, we didn't need that. See, I kind of liked the witch character because at least it's new and it's interesting and... Hey, you know, have a female villain. I agree that they could have done a lot more with her. Yeah, maybe if they've handled her differently, I wouldn't have minded as much. Yes, it's annoying that she plays second fiddle to some guy. And it's also annoying that she 
Again, that's another thing about this movie, like trying to appeal to the Chinese audience and trying to get past the Chinese government censors, not for nothing. It's like a super nationalist movie. So, you know, the witch makes a pretty good pitch of like, hey, come with me and we don't have to exist in this horrible world of men where we're oppressed. And, you know, Mulan's like, no, I'm going to fight for my emperor and for China. Right. Like that's that's a nationalist angle, which. Whatever, every American movie is super nationalist too, but like it's, it's not good in the moment. It doesn't feel right. And yeah, Mulan, it's it's funny. So I also watched uh, because I was curious there again, there's many Chinese versions of Mulan, but there's a 2009 one that's pretty popular that I'd heard in the past. that was very good. That is usually called in the US Mulan Rise of a Warrior. Um, there's no legal way to stream it in the U.S., but if you do a Google search for Milan Rise of a Warrior English subs, who can say what will come up? <laughs> and so I managed to watch it somehow. And uh, I would not say it's like the greatest movie ever. Honestly, I kind of like the animated Disney movie more than it. But it is a good movie and it's actually Chinese and it actually has a unique take. And it just does everything this live action Delarm is, is trying to do so much better in so many ways. But one thing about it that I thought was funny is that the actor who plays Mulan in the Delarm was considered for this 2009 movie and rejected. <laughs> so they're literally picking up the rejects from the actual Chinese Mulan war epic movie. <laughs> you know, what might have helped make this movie go over better in China and not step on all these problems that made it less interesting to a Chinese audience would have been maybe if they'd hired a Chinese director, which they did not. In fact, there are no Asian people on the crew, at least in any major position. You know, I'm, I'm sure if we right. get down to like key grips, maybe there's somebody, but like none of the leaders on the crew were Asian people. Could have helped. And this was controversial. And I have to share this because it's really awful. And a lot has been written about this if you want to go find it. But uh, so the director, Nikki Caro, who is a woman. And I mean, that's still kind of a big deal because there still aren't a lot of women directors, but is a white woman from New Zealand. She was asked, you know, why are you doing this and not an Asian director? And she responded with the absolutely horrible quote. Although it's a critically important Chinese story and it's set in Chinese culture and history, there is another culture at play here, which is the culture of Disney. <laughs> and that director, whoever they were, needed to be able to handle both. And here I am. <laughs> that is so bad in so many ways. That is probably the single worst thing she could have said Outside of just saying, I hate Chinese people and I'm glad they didn't get to direct this movie. Like <laughs> weird. And it really just shows the mindset that was going into this thing. And like by far the worst parts of this movie are, as with all these alarms, when they're doing bits from the original film. Yeah. Their version of the matchmaker scene is so boring. And the matchmaker just walks out with like slightly ruffled hair rather than being on fire with a mustache. Yep. yep. And their version of the 
you know, scene with her father is so boring. Yeah. It's all just, and their versions of Yao, Ling, and Qian Po are so boring. Like It's true. And you can't even hardly tell them apart. They don't have... They don't have distinct personalities. Personalities, yeah. yes. Distinct personalities, that's what I was looking for. No, they totally don't. And, you know, they don't have that distinctive voices, you know... Obviously, they they wouldn't want to get Harvey Firestein, but I'm sure you can find a Chinese guy with like a not even a gravelly voice, just a distinct, like funny personality or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But you could also have them acting oh, yes. different from each other. You know, basically, almost everybody in this movie is not allowed to have expressions and it's it's just not very good. It's disappointing. I honestly think that the stuff with Chi and like where Chi is the force and she's fighting a witch, even though that movie is also stupid and not very good, it's at least more fun. Um, So, yeah, so the the, that's we've talked about the Delarm and we have talked about Mulan. And so it's time to rate these movies, uh, not using a numerical scale, but by asking each other two questions. First of which is, Mom, uh, would you recommend this movie? I would indeed recommend this movie. It's a lot of fun. It is a bit dark, but it doesn't feel too dark. Yes, I agree. When Disney movies get the blend of darkness and uh, silliness right, and when they can make you feel those goosebumps, those Sleeping Beauty goosebumps, that's that's the magic, baby, and it's all here. Yeah. And it's a great movie to end the Renaissance era on. Would you uh, would you recommend this to a child? I would, and I did, in fact, show it to my children. Even though it does have a lot of darkness in it, it never felt like stuff that you can't let kids see, if that makes sense. I mean, clearly, I talked about how it took me a while to realize what some of the references to death were. Right. I think a lot of it goes over your head or doesn't bother you as much as, like, You know, when you see the field of corpses, as cynical as this is, you know, from a kid's point of view, like, well, that's just even if you realize you're looking at bodies, they're just some bodies versus like, you know, the much more traumatizing thing is when you see Bambi's mom or Mufasa die. And it's like, wait a minute, you can't kill a character I know and like. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you know your own kids. But yeah, I, I would say this is probably fine, even with its darkness. Do you have any final thoughts on the Renaissance era as a whole? Is we have come to the end of this miniseries, we will be taking a week break before we hop into the experimental era. Overall, it's a pretty good era. It starts really strong. Yes. Uh, got a couple of not so good ones here towards the end, but then at least it ends strong with Mulan. I have to think about, do I have a favorite movie in this era? And it's probably still The Lion King over Mulan. But it's a hard choice because I really like so many of them. Since we've watched this one, I've been debating, do we like Mulan or Beauty and the Beast? Do I like Mulan or Beauty and the Beast better? And I think throughout our discussion, I have come to the decision that it is Mulan. I think it's just a more thematically rich uh, movie. I feel like it's even, you know, the balance they were trying for in Hunchback of Notre Dame, they got right in Mulan because, yes, you know, they managed to balance the darkness with the humor so much better than in Hunchback. Yeah, I think my final ranking from best to worst is Lion King, then Mulan, then Beauty and the Beast. Those two are close. Then Aladdin, Little Mermaid, then Rescuers Down Under and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Those are very close. 
Hunchback of Notre Dame has higher highs, but Rescuers Down Under is more consistent. Then a big gap to Hercules, and then a gigantic crater in the bottom of which you will find Pocahontas. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's one of the worst movies we're going to cover. But overall, yeah, I mean, I have no hot takes on the Renaissance era. It's famously good. And it's true. It created the formulas that we're still, for better or for worse, largely dealing with today. It's an interesting era for me to think back on because it goes from, you know, just before I started high school to um, I'm married with a child by the end of it. So it covers a very formidable span of my life. I do think of the like two eras we've covered that people are like, well, these are obviously great. The silver era and the Renaissance era. I think overall, I like the silver era better. I think there are more. I mean, there's nothing on the level of Pocahontas. I think there's more consistently great movies and like, you know, Sleeping Beauty, nothing still that we've watched has topped that for me. And like Jungle Book, Sword in the Stone, 101 Dalmatians, like Alice in Wonderland. But yeah, the Renaissance is great. It's been a delight to talk about it. Even still, even still, there is possibly no era I've been looking forward to talking about most in the experimental era. I'm not looking forward to watching all of these movies, <laughs> but this is one of my favorite eras, A, partially because it's, you know, the one I grew up in, I think, but also because it's demented. It's deranged. <laughs> we will never get the kinds of movies we got in the experimental era from Disney ever again. I truly believe that. <laughs> never before or since would you get an Emperor's New Groove or a Lilo and Stitch or a dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> or, or a Chicken Little, like... It's wild stuff, folks, and we're excited. Here to, comes the roller coaster. Here it comes. And we were excited to ride the roller coaster in two weeks with Phil Collins's Tarzan. <laughs> Mom, what do you think of that movie? I will always remember the trailer from that movie of him surfing on the tree branches. I agree. What a stupid idea, <laughs> surfing on trees. So until next time, when we're surfing on trees for some reason... I'm me. And I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse, and it's happy to meet you. <laughs>